Move Against Cancer podcast. We are your hosts, Gemma Hillier Moses, Move Charity founder, lover of all things running, travel, and tea. And I'm Lucy Gossage, oncologist, outdoor adventure lover, and 5K UA co founder. I'm Georgie Freeman, lover of exploring new places and the 5K UA manager. The reason we originally set up this podcast was to inspire and support and empower people to move and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. In this podcast, we want to share the stories of ordinary people doing incredible things as they find their own way to move against cancer. Going through cancer treatment can feel incredibly isolating and lonely. There's so much behind every individual cancer journey and so much of it is unseen and often unspoken. We want to explore the ways our guests navigate their way through the unimaginable. And we hope that by doing this, we can provide you with some tips, some tools and some inspiration to make your journey that little bit easier. We'll cover every aspect of living with and after cancer, from physical and psychological well-being, identity, goal setting, mindset, staying active, grief and loss, family and friends, and so much more. We will make you laugh, but we also may make you cry. But we guarantee that you'll take something away from every single episode. So we do really hope that you enjoy listening. Welcome to Series 2 and Episode 2 of the Move Against Cancer podcast. My name is Gemma Hillier Moses and I am the founder of Move Charity. You probably already know this if you've listened to our podcast, but I love a little bit of running, love to chat, as you can tell from all the conversations in our podcasts and the workshops that I do. And I love connecting with others and being able to share their stories. I can't quite believe that we're actually into series two of our podcast, of our Move Against Cancer podcast. When Lucy, Georgie and I decided to set up this podcast, we actually had no idea what to expect. So it's been amazing seeing everybody download Um, the episodes, having your wonderful feedback, love and support and our incredible guests for giving up their time. And we're really excited to see where this podcast goes and hopefully you will um, support it. And also it will help to support, inspire and empower people to join us in Moving Against Cancer. So I'm really excited about this week's episode with Cancer Rehab Specialist, 5K UA Ambassador and author, Carolyn Garrett. We are going to be talking today about Carolyn's life journey, which is absolutely fascinating. Her personal and professional experiences of cancer and her newly published book, Get Your Umph Back, A Guide to Exercise After Cancer. So take a listen to today's episode, make sure you download it and let us know what you think. So welcome to series two of the Move Against Cancer podcast. And I am so honoured to have Carolyn join us. And it's actually Carolyn's first podcast as well. So welcome, Carolyn. Thank you. And actually, the honour's mine. I'm really quite chuffed to have been asked, so thank you. Oh, no, it's an absolute honour to have you on. And this is a really good and amazing period of your life because you've launched a book and you're on your first podcast. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, pretty exciting. Um, So what we're going to cover today, um, we're going to talk about your book, which is Get Your Oomph Back. And I'm going to ask you all about the word oomph because you love that word and it's a big part of your life. And that's a book about a guide to exercise after a cancer diagnosis. But what I want you to take us back to is where did this all start? So why cancer rehab? Okay, well, kind of goes, but I've worked in cancer in some way or another for all my adult life, more or less. And it started completely accidentally. I had a little 
mat leave cover in an office that happened to be in the mammography department in Trelisk Hospital in Truro, funnily enough. I used to live in Cornwall and I just, I had an admin job and I stayed and I had a different admin job and stuff. And I ended up working in breast screening oh, for about 10 years. Wow. And then, yeah. That. yeah. It, was, it was quite an accidental start. Um, I believed in it, actually, even though I was, I was never clinical. I was always admin or managerial. And then I went to work for, I think they still exist. They, they changed their names, but what was a cancer network? And um, that was much more broad around all different cancers. We looked after a certain geography. And um, I, rem- the idea of cancer survivorship, I know some people don't like the word. I'm not sure if I like the word, I've got to admit, but the idea of cancer survivorship, I'm so old, Gemma, that I remember it being a bit new. Yeah. And, <laughs> so I was, I was in You're the not NH- old. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely don't look it. <laughs> um, I was in the NHS for the best part of 20 years. And um, when the first time I heard about cancer survivorship, I was just really blown away because it was like this massive penny dropped because there'd always been all this stuff about early diagnosis and I'd known that from working in screening and I knew lots about how important it was as I say this is through the eyes of somebody who wasn't clinical and at the time it was through the eyes of somebody who hadn't had it but I knew how important early diagnosis was or could be and I knew how important good treatment was and effective treatment and stuff but this whole idea of what happens after after treatment started, after treatment's finished, if you do finish. Um, I had no idea. <laughs> and yeah. it's, like there was... Most, like most um, people as well. Yeah, but also, it, actually, the conversations I was I was hearing was actually the NHS also, but parts of the NHS also going, do you know what, that we need to, we need to expand our expectations of, of how we look after people. And it, it come, coincides with people surviving cancer more, you know, we... There is more cancer in the population, but a greater proportion for most cancers, a greater proportion of surviving it. And so that in itself is a relatively recent change. But it was this idea that people needed support because the legacy, normally from the treatment rather than the cancer, the legacy is so broad and often lifelong. And I think I had this massive penny drop at the time. So I was I was very, when I first heard a description of what surviving cancer is like, I had no idea. Um, yeah. And then around the same time, my mum was diagnosed. My mum had a screen detected cancer. And um, I was doing a little project at the time on the links between familial breast cancer. Yeah. And uh, funnily enough, I asked to not work on it for a bit because it felt a bit close to home. And that's I just really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes yeah. actually working on while having it in your professional and personal yeah. life can actually get really overwhelming. Yeah, it can. Um, and so I, I don't really remember how, but I ended up reading or I, there was something going on about specifically about exercise and cancer. And I've, I've never been a gym bunny, but I've always been really active. And there was suddenly this... Uh, Again, another penny drop for me, the, the the value of exercise. I knew about it as a primary prevention thing, you know, or the, the idea that uh, the more active people are, the less 
you know, the more that you can reduce your risk of having cancer initially. But the whole story about the value of exercise after a cancer diagnosis, I just found fascinating um, and important. And that knowledge base, the the knowledge around what we know about um, the breadth of value of exercise after a cancer diagnosis it's just mushrooms so in the it was an again an early conversation when i was first looking at it um, and i think and that's that, cool oh sorry i was just going to say that's really fascinating because i read in your the book that um you've brought out and we'll go into that in more detail but that you were in a conference in 2008 <laughs> when macmillan published the report about yeah two million reasons and yeah. you said that you're you're in awe of the professor sir mike richards oh i was he... <laughs> i was a big fan girl uh, a lot of people that worked across cancer services would have felt the same uh, i think you might be blushing there <laughs> <laughs> no he was just he was somebody he was a very good speaker he he always sounded like he he sounded very genuine, very authentic man, I found him to be. And, yeah, the, when Macmillan did this piece of work called Two Million Reasons, again, it was this massive penny-dropping moment for me. And I remember uh, Mike Richards talking about it at the time. We used to have, uh, like, uh, training events for so that we knew, so that people working within cancer services and cancer networks, so that our knowledge was up to date. And um, the two million reasons was the fact that that at the time there were two million people living in the UK with a cancer diagnosis, and yeah. the scale that document described the scale, you know, numerically the scale of uh, cancer survival in this country, but also the need. So yeah, that was a big penny dropping moment for me. And Mike didn't write the report; that was Matt Mullen's report. But let's say he was the person conveying the message when I went. And it- Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish people could see your face right now. <laughs> I think, like you said, it's mind blowing though to know that many people are living with and beyond yeah. cancer. And actually, like you said, when the treatment's going on or the treatment ends, what's next? And how yeah. do you keep yourself, you know, your quality of life? There's lots of components that surround being diagnosed with cancer, not just the treatment. And I think that's why, you know, the work that we know around physical activity, cancer movement exercise for the physical and mental health is so incredibly important. Mm. But I want to deep dive. I think people would be really interested to know because this is not just from, you know, you've had an incredible career and you're an amazing lady, honestly. I'm in awe of everything you do. And you've, you know, you've gone from being in the NHS, like you say, for 20 years to setting up your own business and that is around cancer and exercise but also personal training and supporting other people from different walks of life so I think people are really inspired by how you actually make that jump and how what what made you go and take that step into running your own business and also why did you call it is it the getting your umph back because I love that um so the career change I think a lot of people get to the point I don't know, in their 30s, maybe 40s, where you start to wonder if, you know, if you've had quite a singular career, is that the thing that you're going to do for the rest of your life? And I had a little bit of a realisation that I wanted to do something different. To be brutally honest, I'd been promoted to a point where I felt a bit uncomfortable. I was surprisingly senior. (laughs) It's hard work, isn't it, sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it kind of it just wasn't really working for me. I don't think I was, I got to a point where I don't know if I was particularly good at my job, to be honest. And I certainly, the job wasn't particularly good for me. If that doesn't sound like a massive cliche. 
Um, and I went off to college. I went off, uh, I did a weekend course, you know, over several weekends at the YMCA. And I just studied basic entry level into the fitness industry as gym instructor. Amazing. And I went off just to, just to hear. The other thing I did actually, which was pivotal, was I had a little bit of career coaching. And uh, oh. this wonderful lady got me to think about, very broad, um, she got me to think about who I respected, whose views I valued, um, what, an awful lot of stuff about my own principles and my priorities, you know, how important was it for me to earn a lot of money or not, and how important was it for me to be autonomous or not, and all sorts of things. Wow. And I remember her saying, she wanted me to tell her, when was the last time I could think of where I was completely absorbed in something where I couldn't, I lost track of time and I was just me and I was fluid and I was comfortable and I was doing something that I loved to the extent that time just passed. And I said, well, I was running along the Thames. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> and I'm not a fast runner, you know. Um, I, I've always loved running uh, right from being a little kid. Let's um, say with very little speed going on there but uh being outdoors gentle exercise yeah. outdoors has been my personal bag for a really long time and it was to go through this thought process of all right if that's the thing if that's where you can lose yourself then how on earth could that be a job and yeah. then mixing the idea again this is going back a few years where there weren't really so there were cardiac rehab instructors but cancer rehab instructors were really quite really rare mm, um, yeah so and I actually here's a book recommendation I read a book because at the time I was you know you're having a bit of a think and you're thinking maybe this is time for some change and I read this book called screw work uh, <laughs> I love it. that's it does what it says on the tin <laughs> it does. and the tagline was how to get paid doing what you love or something along those lines uh what was the author John Williams is the author and Amazing. it was exactly about that. And it's not to be too uh, crass in a way, It's not, but it was not necessarily how to monetize, but how to turn something that you love doing into your job. And um, I just played around with that idea for a, a, a bit. And that's what sent me off to gym instructor school, just to see how it felt. And I thought, if the worst case, you know, I've wasted a few weekends and a few hundred quid and I'll know how to use a gym better. And I just loved the learning. So I did that. And then I trained as a, um, I did a training thing where you can, uh, what's it called? Exercise referral, where yeah. I could train people with certain medical conditions. And from then on to uh, cancer rehab training. Amazing. I think, I think that journey, though, is more powerful than you maybe kind of like let on because I think a lot of people get to crossroads in their life and especially actually after the pandemic um, or people going through really tough times so we know people who've been through cancer cancer diagnosis you feel like you evaluate your life and you look at perspective in such a different way and you look at your life's decisions and choices and where you really want to spend your time and you've shown that you know it's never too late to make those decisions but also mm -hmm. actually I've never really heard somebody that you only hear about careers advisors when people are going through university and at the end mm. when they're in the 20s. But actually, you're right. At any point in your life, that could be, if you get the right person, that could be a pivotal yeah. moment for you because it sounded like it was for you. And that's life-changing. Yeah, it was. It just 
got me to think differently and to think with an open mind. And it also reinforced the fact that I knew I wanted change as well. I did not want my boss's job. I knew that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was. And actually the little book, you know, it's it, it's one of those things many people might read a book like that and dismiss it or find it didn't talk to them. I just read it at the right time and uh, it just, yeah, it, it hit a chord. The other so, thing. Yeah, <laughs> where did that come from? So my partner gently takes the mickey out of my accent. I haven't lived in Yorkshire since I was a kid, but I've kept the accent. And there must be something around how I pronounce the word umph. There was a bit of gentle mickey taking. So I thought I'm going to have a word that sounds brilliant with a northern accent. So we had umph. Oomph. And, and um, stuck with you forever now. It has. <laughs> it has. And it was the idea... I don't know the idea of, of getting something back. You know, I've always had this intention of working in rehab and uh, the idea of, of some kind of recovery of something, which is where the idea of getting your umph back came from. But it's as much to do with how it sounds with a Doncaster accent as anything else. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely love it. And like you say, it's it kind of describes everything because it is what it is. It's like get your umph back. And mm. that, you don't even have to explain. I love it when a word, you just say, you don't have to explain what it means mm. and everybody knows what that means. So let's talk about cancer and exercise and cancer and physical activity, cancer and movement. Why is it important? Oh, blimey. Could we open a can of worms? Yeah, <laughs> How long have we got? Yeah, yeah, have a seat, Gemma. Um, so when, so I often do talks about that, actually, and I always start with the one big headline because as much as anything, everybody's ears prick up. It's associated with a lower risk of recurrence. Simple as. Um, and there's loads, loads of clinical evidence, loads of it. And, you know, there was a, a decent body of evidence when I started doing this, but it has just grown and grown and grown. And what is known, it's mostly around the common cancers, simply because there are more people to study. But most definitely breast, bowel, prostate cancer and some others, but where the strongest evidence is around that. Um, people who are active after a cancer diagnosis, um, you see a lower risk of recurrence. Now, there's no guarantees, obviously. And uh, it's really careful to use statistics. You know, statistics describe a whole population and uh, you can be as fit as anything and it doesn't give you any guarantees it, it, you can't prevent yeah. cancer coming back uh, we sometimes describe it as wearing a seatbelt in the car so you yeah. can't often you can't you know prevent a car accident from happening but you can yeah. give yourself a better chance of surviving it yeah, and exactly. I think it's kind of quite a clear analogy of the it same is. with cancer and exercise it's a really good analogy so yeah there's a there's a link with lower risk of recurrence if you're active after cancer, there's a risk. There's a lower risk of dying of cancer if you're active after a diagnosis. And for people whose cancers have spread, there is uh, a, exercise has been shown to help reduce disease progression. So, arguably, you you may live longer um, with cancer. Um, as I say, you have to be really careful because there's such loaded statistics, and the words yeah. are really loaded. But that's what's there as knowledge. Um, but then beyond that, it's the fact that most people, to one degree or another, feel rubbish as a result yeah. of their treatment. And exercise 
physical activity. I know you're really good at using words like movement. I tend to get stuck in exercise, but it's not. It's about moving your body, which can be so many things. Yeah. All of the main side effects of cancer, to one degree or another, have been shown to be reduced by exercise. Now, again, no guarantees. And certainly some of, you know, one of the biggest, the biggest, um, the most commonly reported side effect of treatment is fatigue. And it's dead easy to say if you're active, it, you, you, always, you know, you, your fatigue may be lessened. And that's really difficult. If you feel crap, then, you know, the last thing people need is somebody to say, well, go for a run, you'll feel better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no whatsoever. No. Um, but certainly my experience, my personal experience and my experience of working with other people is that as long as you feel all right to do it, and I think it's dead important that we cut ourselves some slack, sometimes you need a rest day. But broadly, if you feel all right to do a bit and you do a bit, then you feel better at the time. And, you know, long term, we know exercise um, can help protect us against all sorts of things, but also on the day. Yeah. Within the hour, you can normally feel, you know, your mood may brighten, your energy levels may feel a bit higher, you may feel a bit more relaxed, all sorts of things that uh, you just feel a bit better. Yeah. And you work a lot one to one with clients, don't you, in terms of supporting them. So what do you find, like, what are your best moments of just through, like, from starting working them when they may have just started treatment or been diagnosed with cancer to taking them on a journey? What do you, what stands out to you that oh, you're like, wow. that's amazing? <laughs> oh, there are some, okay, so my oldest client, uh, and actually his, his description is in the book. Uh, my oldest client was a chap called Roger, and I was working with Roger until he died. He was 94 when he died. Wow. So I've been a personal trainer to 90-somethings, which is brilliant. And uh, he had cancer and dementia. And um, his, it was his carer, actually, one of his carers that first suggested we, we train together because he used to do, I would just associate it as, as a kind of old man shuffle. His feet wouldn't pick up when he walked and he'd kind of scrape them along the ground a bit. And I always imagined that that was a physical thing, but it isn't. It's neurological. It was linked to his dementia. And so we got him Nordic walking and the poles just helped him stand up taller because uh, he had um, osteoporosis. He would crouch forward a bit. So they brought him up and that gave him better vision of the floor. You know, he could literally could see where he was going better. And the pole, if you use, I bang on about Nordic walking all the time. We wouldn't have got through this podcast no. without at least mentioning it once <laughs> i was actually going to mention nordic walking because i was like it's your number one thing to do yeah, isn't it? it is uh the nordic walking poles they help give the brain a bit more uh information about where the floor is so the combination of, of the impact of the poles was that this man stood taller and walked better and when we walked with two poles he didn't scrape his feet which was phenomenal wow and i worked with him for several years uh, so he was he was a, an older gentleman and he um, his dementia meant that he was starting to fall a bit. So we moved our sessions indoors and uh, we used to dance around his dining table and it was just delightful. It was such a privilege. I know you can get quite cliche talking about because by that point he was uh, his, his cancer had spread. So you know he wasn't going to live for a lot longer. 
it was an utter delight to work with that man and a deep privilege. And we had, so he was a really big jazz fan and I am. And we had a jazz off because he oh. said that the best jazz vocalist ever was, um, I've got to always forget his name. Tim Oxford makes you forget words, you know, Gemma. What was the man with bright blue eyes? I would not have a clue. You're asking the wrong person. I'm R&B through and through. Sang Strangers in the Night. Oh, God, I've forgotten his name. It'll come back to me. Anyway, anybody listening to this is is screaming their name. name, (laughs) They can give us a... Shame we haven't got a question box of like, enter the answer now. I said that the best... um, I'm going to Google this while we're talking because this is too embarrassing. I said that the best jazz vocalist ever was um, Ella Fitzgerald. And what we would do was we would play these two singers doing the same song against each other to see who was right. Um, and then you dance around the table while doing we that, would. would you? So oh, we do really like cardio. So this is the thing about music and dementia. He would remember his, his favourite song was Strangers in the Night. And uh, if we played it, it would trigger his memory in a good way. I know it's a bit of a gamble because, you know, sometimes uh, if you remember things that's painful, you know, it can come back. But uh, dancing to a bit of jazz would uh, prompt his memory. Frank Sinatra. Oh, oh gosh, the obvious. (laughs) (laughs) I do know that name. (laughs) That's when you have a moment on a podcast and you actually remembered it. I have these all the time all the time so yeah that was delightful we would dance around to and a bit of doris day and stuff like that and his memory was much clearer it was gorgeous it was such a privilege to work with him so that was that was that that kind of also shows living in the present as well like you were both in the moment and i think what you said earlier around um you know even when 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 do you feel the most free and when you can find you just zone out from everything. And for that client you were talking about there, that was his moment of just mm. being at home in the with you dancing around the table and the jazz music on. And yeah. what would you say to people? Because I know a lot of people would are reluctant to change and we all are. Like, you know, we all get into our own routines, our own things we do, and we don't often step outside our comfort zones. And connecting with cancer rehab if you've been diagnosed with cancer is still stepping out your comfort zone because... Mm even in the NHS and even, you know, we're getting more and more information around cancer and exercise and the benefits, but still not enough because we know that healthcare, some healthcare professionals aren't talking about it enough. So what would you say to somebody about stepping out your comfort zone, going to work with a cancer rehab instructor or just trying something new and different? Like what, what do they need to think about to do that? Um, well, I think... To be honest, if you think so, you asked me about the benefits and I started off with the big, big hitting headlines. And I think most people are starting to know that. So it's almost like even if you're a lot of people hate exercise and I get that a lot of people, people carry scars. Adults carry Mm. scars for life around school games and being teams and stuff like that. A lot of people dislike exercise. They don't like getting sweaty and stuff like that. But I think. My my impression is that the messages around the benefits of exercise after a cancer diagnosis are being are being um, are being heard. Actually, I think people know that, that it's just that they struggle with 
how how are you going to do it and yeah. what will work and what's safe and um you know if, if you need your car fixing you can look it up on youtube or you can go and see a mechanic and somebody who has specifically chosen to work in cancer rehab they're going to know what they're on about and they're going to have chosen that for a reason i mean it's a fabulous field to work in um one of the reasons i really like being a personal trainer is because it's really creative and you can do things like dance around a dining table and it's not the wrong thing to do yeah um, so personal tra- specialist uh, instructors have had all this information about what's safe so that you can be confident in doing stuff with them but beyond that they can be creative so if if you're not terribly comfortable about going onto a gym floor then um a rehab instructor will be able to think of other things you can do and i've had some lovely requests of things to do uh one lady who had uh she had the BRCA gene she only found the the breast the main breast can one of the main breast cancer genes and she only found that out because she had a screen detected cancer so her treatment was pretty brutal and uh, she had a bilateral mastectomy and she had um hysterectomy as well and um she was an academic very really clever lady i had to up my game in terms of conversation skills during <laughs> sessions i tell you you couldn't forget the jazz artist could you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I had to be much more on form than that. But she was amazing. And uh, we trained all the way through. It was during a winter and we were outdoors, Nordic walking and strength training. And as I say, there's such a range of what people have to go through in treatment. And I would say her treatment was grim. It really was. The the, uh, chemo stuff, she seemed to, every single side effect, every single impact seemed to get her lesser and she wanted to learn to surf <laughs> wow i know just out so, the blue or yeah yeah I didn't see that coming so it was a matter of thinking about uh you know after surgery how the, the business about how you get from lying on a surfboard to standing on it how you break down that movement can you surf can no i can't swim actually i'm <laughs> really fine in water everybody's always really surprised because yeah, sporty but no I am not a water baby but something like surfing you do an awful lot of your training on land anyway mm, yeah and um, like you say it's breaking you don't have to be able to do the sport we always say it's like um I read Matthew Haig's book around the junior doctor and you know men deliver deliver um deliver babies I can't get my words out today but as gynecologist you're in the maternity rooms delivering women's babies but you you're not ever pregnant yourself so how can you do that and it's like actually you just break down what needs to happen yeah break down what training needs to go into making the action happen for somebody yeah I trained a fellow who had one of the gastric um cancers and he he'd had a really large surgical intervention so he had a really big scar down his belly and his bag was clay pigeon shooting um and rifles are heavy so again we you know you have to be able to sorry this is not this is a visual thing (laughs) i can see you though if you describe what you're doing to uh lift what your so if you're right-handed you have to be able to lift your left arm up high and hold something really heavy really still 
and you know you need your belly muscles for that as well as your arm muscles so we could do some really interesting strength training and we were in Hyde Park and I'd have him with a resistance band holding it up he looked like the Statue of Liberty you know (laughs) (laughs) there's, there's always stuff you can find things that people love one of the anecdotes I've told so many times and it's in the book is that I have trained a crack brilliant highly competitive croquet player wow I know. That's amazing, isn't it? I you know. must have, you must meet so many incredible and interesting people and have so many stories to tell. But it's just about tapping into what people, sometimes it's about tapping into what they're willing to do in order to be more active and to be fitter. But normally, you know, the, when this comes alive is when there's something that people are going to do as part of their life that yeah. will will involve them being more active um, and that will get them some sense of satisfaction beyond straightforward sometimes it's weight loss or weight gain but more you know about you know i've been to the gym three times that's perfectly legit if people want to go to the gym three times a week then that's fab but we have the scope to make this much more yeah i think like you like you say like exercise is more than just one area and people Mm -hmm. see it as the gym and they associate it with that or they associate with sport the word sport being what they did at school and that's where you feel the horror stories come out and people you know start to get the the shudders because they just can't get their heads around that they would ever do sport again in their life after horrific experiences but I think we've got to start to break down barriers to those words because movement, physical activity, exercise, it can mean whatever it wants to you. So in a way, like we have the 5k away initiative. It's like that, you know, you can do sports, exercise, physical activity, movement in your own way, wherever you want to do it. And, you know, you don't have to ask anybody's permission to do that. And like you say, it is a physical thing, but it's also very much a psychological thing. And some of it's breaking down boundaries in your own mind of yeah. how do you start? How do you come over the challenges or the, the previous beliefs? And how mm-hmm. do you take those first steps? Yeah. Um, it's why I love parkrun, which is, you know, that's the thing that, to be honest, it's a love, mutual love of parkrun, which is how come I met you in the first place. Yeah. Setting up um, 5K your way. But I adore parkrun because... Once you get your head around the fact it's got the word run in it, um, I love the fact that it embraces anybody who's simply willing to rock up at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, which in itself can be a challenge if you're tired. Yeah. Saturday mornings, getting up early is, uh, you know, that in itself is something to achieve. But you can feel amazing doing parkrun and you don't have to run and there's no pressure. And actually the people that act like idiots and, treat it like a race they're the outliers you know it's it's about enjoyment and participation and I just love them for that yeah and I'm glad you've come on to that because we we we're gonna we're going on your life journey right now (laughs) we're coming on to how we met which is so special (laughs) so we know that you know what we were talking about there is how important personalized one-to-one um help and support is when you've got a cancer diagnosis because like both you and I know, and we'll come on to your personal diagnosis with cancer um, in the pandemic, but we both know that regardless of your, if you're on the same treatment as somebody, you have the same diagnosis, 
the reactions of your body and the way you cope with things can be worlds apart. And that's mm. why not one size fits all with any advice at all, which can be really difficult because, you know, both me and you have delivered workshops and they tend to not be specific to people, but we give general sound bites and information. But we both know how important it is for one to one individual work to really help you, you know, meet your own, meet your goals, meet your needs and do what's right mm. for you. But there is an element of why we set up 5K Away Move Against Cancer and why you've, um, you're an ambassador for one of the groups and play a huge role in, in what we do. And that is because we understand that not everybody has access to that personalized approach. Not mm. everybody wants that personalized approach, but what they want to maybe do is be surrounded by people who've had similar experiences to them, get out in nature, move a little bit more and whether that be volunteering, walking mm -hmm. or just doing part of it. And that's why 5K Away was created. But why did you get involved with, well, we know kind of you've said about Park Run, but what kind of made you look at five the 5K Away initiative and go, oh, that might be a good idea? Do you know what? I just thought it was genius. I really, truly did. I just thought it was such a smart idea. Um, I've done a couple of, so I do a lot of work with Maggie's um, and there'd been a couple of groups where we'd aside from being them taking part in a class or a course or something that I was running where we'd played around with couch to 5k which again you haven't got to run you, you know couch to 5k is a way of using interval training spurts of activity versus gentler activity and um then there have been a few people who I'd talked to about doing couch to 5k because it's Again, you can you can gear it around the individual, but it's it's a really well used, well documented tool. And the idea is you get to a point that you are moving for 30, 40 minutes, maybe longer, but there's no time limit. It's just this it's progressive. And I've always liked that. So when I read about you lovely people going to Parkrun, <laughs> I just thought it was brilliant, actually. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you. I just thought it was a really clever idea. And the idea of adding some social aspect, which some people don't like, some people, yeah. require, they don't want to run with other people. They don't want to be in a support group. And that's absolutely fair yeah. enough. But if you do want some running buddies or some park buddies or just some people and you don't have to like have a really heavy conversation about your cancer treatment. It's just some like minded souls yeah. to just be there at the same time. And um, I think it's a cracking idea. I, I just bribe my lot with cake. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. <laughs> a lot of our ambassadors are cake makers now. Totally. I, think, I think like what you said, Karen, there was that, so I, you know, we, me and Lucy had the idea around um, 5K Away Move Against Cancer Initiative because I was, I was also, Lucy came from a clinical background, but mm. I actually was doing a lot of walk and talk groups in Nottingham, which some weeks we'd get, you know, 12 young people and then other weeks I'd get nobody turn up and I'd be walking around a park on my own. Yeah. Um, and I knew the need was there because you'd speak to healthcare professionals or support workers, you'd be working with people with cancer and saying, look, they need this for physical and mental health. But actually getting yourselves there on a regular basis became quite difficult. Mm. But I think what 5K Away groups create is that it's a community within a community, which makes yeah. such a difference. So you'll know, like we have some groups and you may have had the same way. You turn up and there's only one other person. And mm. we don't see that as a negative at all. We're like, that's amazing. You've, you're helping one other person. Yeah. And even yeah. if you're just helping yourself, that's great. But you're never alone because 
you're within an existing community. And yeah. like you said, the word park run can kind of deter people because they think it's just running, but there's so mm. much value in just walking or doing half of it or volunteering. I think people I haven't explored volunteering enough yet. And Completely. that's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I think like you say, that's about what it's about doing is getting out, being active, seeing other people. And once you take that step, like nobody wants to get up on a Saturday and be out before nine. But it's like, <laughs> once you do take that step, you realise I am so glad I did that. Yeah, and exactly. yeah, and it's... And I always find, it's like I get more out of my Saturday. Saturdays, it's not that they seem longer in a bad way, but it's as if you just get more Saturday. And it's probably just because I've got myself moving quicker, but... Uh, yeah, it, it puts me yeah. in a lovely frame of mind to do parkrun. And you're absolutely right. Volunteering can feel as rewarding, easily as rewarding as um, trotting around the course yourself. And I think we've, because we've had, we've been on a break with groups. How has your group found being on a complete break for the last year and a half and we had virtual challenges? But then it was there barriers or, mm. um, you know, people didn't want to come back or how has that dynamic been since coming launching relaunching again so we did a few towards the end of lockdown we did a few um unofficial you know not meetings not park rooms (laughs) so yeah we would go to the park around the same time and um do our thing but it was just lovely to pass each other or you know give each other a wave um and so what was this will be the third is this the fourth july i think we came back i might yeah. be wrong though yeah. <laughs> hopefully I'm so, numbers are small and i would love to persuade more people that live with access to southwark i'd love to persuade more people to come it's a really gorgeous little group uh sometimes look at the photos of the big groups of 5k your way and i'm well jealous because they're all in all their lovely oh. blue t-shirts and there's like 30 of them and i think oh but be proud of your group. <laughs> be proud very, of your small group. You don't always have the numbers. <laughs> they're lovely. And again, people have got to know each other. They've worked out commonalities. You know, there was one lovely conversation between two women when they realised they had the same bowel surgeon. And it was just this kind of thing. There's some continuity which is going on. Um, people are busy. Uh, weekends are busy. Now, I think that a lot of people have a backlog of family to visit, things to do, holidays to go on. So certainly I know that the the, um, event that we've got this coming Saturday is going to be another quiet one because some people are away or whatever. But uh, it's not, you know, just like Park Run's not a race. I know that 5K your way, the the groups, it's not about numbers, it's about experience. And so there'll be be half a dozen of us and we'll um, do. One, One of the things that's nice about, park run route that we do is it's some people hate doing laps I think I quite like it and it's three laps so each time's a mile and if you're feeling a bit uh if you're not feeling too energetic you can always drop out after the first or second lap um yeah and that works perfectly doesn't it for you know, mm. people who are going through cancer or families and friends. And like you say, you can then cheer each other on on the way around as well, which yeah. is always quite nice. Yeah. Not um, allowed to high five at the moment because of the pandemic. But, you know. No. Although a funny story about that, my sister, we, she did Manchester Marathon and she was like, 
yeah, I was high-fiving all the kids on the way around because we've just listened to this podcast um, on the High Performance Podcast. So anybody who wants a really good podcast to listen to, as well as the Move Against Cancer podcast, the High Performance Podcast is really good. And there's an interview with a lady, a motivational speaker called Mel Robbins, and she's just released a book called About the High Five and how high-fiving yourself in the mirror every morning can give you energy that you need to kind of start your day on a positive note. So my sister was saying, oh, I high-fived everybody on the way around. And we were like, Kirsty, maybe not a good idea <laughs> with what's going on. But it gave her the energy that she needed. So yeah. hopefully at some point, high-fives will be, will be coming come back. back. <laughs> um, but let's move on to your um, personal diagnosis of cancer, okay. um, Carolyn, because I think if you're happy to talk about this, because I think we've seen your professional career and being involved in cancer for such a long time. And then actually to be hit with a cancer diagnosis mm -hmm. yourself, how did that feel and how did you deal with it? And where are you now? Um, it's really weird. I think because I'd been surrounded by cancer, as I say, my whole working life, mum had cancer. My dad died of prostate cancer, uh, died with prostate cancer three years ago. So there's all cancer has always been present in my, you know, in my world. Yeah, and I to be honest, I always assumed that I would get breast cancer. I've always known that you know I don't have kids. Um, I've always known that certain risk factors applied to me. Um, and was so that from a genetic perspective, or just you just kind of thought about it? Because not many people do think about it, do yeah. they? Yeah, but I'd been surrounded by a knowledge of what the risk factors for yeah. breast cancer are. Anyway, so you know women who have children and who have children early are less likely to develop breast cancer. Now that's not birth control advice or not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just knowing that women who've not had children are more, are, are, are statistically are more prone. Um, I've always liked a gin. And again, I know that your alcohol, there's a, a link between your alcohol units and risk of breast cancer, stuff like that. So as I say, I'd always, and it's a common cancer for goodness yeah. sake. It's down to one in seven now. Women get breast cancer and some men. It's just really interesting how you're talking about it there because I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about it in that way so matter-of-factly. Okay. Well, yeah. again, it had been in my consciousness for a really long time. I thought I'd be older than I was. I was 51 when I was diagnosed, and that was during the start of the pandemic. And I found uh, a lump totally by accident because I'd had to move on to working on screen uh, because I couldn't see clients in person and I'd been holding a pair of dumbbells and boxing so like shadow boxing rather than holding up the pads with somebody face to face and I'd done two sessions on the same day where I'd done a really similar thing and I thought I'd sprained one of my pectoral muscles it just felt a little bit odd um you know I had a bit of a prod about and I thought well actually you know this this would classically be a bit of a lump so I reported it that's really because actually I've heard a lot of people talk about finding either lumps or issues through exercise yeah. whether it be you know actually using exercise as a tool to go you're quite aware of your body something yeah. doesn't feel right here people have yeah. had it with breathing and fitness you know they're supposed to be increasing their fitness it's just getting worse and worse and actually that being you know your red flag saying yeah you need to get that checked out yeah of course that, that makes total sense so yeah uh you know i knew the drill if you've got a got a lump you report it rang the gp didn't need to see a gp because it was a pandemic and i was seen and treated incredibly quickly because i found my lump 
as I say, at the start of lockdown when nobody was going to their GP, nobody was coming forward with symptoms. So I actually, the the, the clinic I was diagnosed in was deserted. Um, wow. it, was re it was odd and it was weird because it meant that I had an awful lot of attention. So a lot of people have asked whether it was odd to be diagnosed during a pandemic. And well, of course it was because the pandemic's odd, it still is. Um, yeah. But I had no, I had brilliant care. I had no waiting virtually. I was, so I, I elected to have a mastectomy. I was given a little bit of choice, but not really, um, just because of where it was. And uh, it was it was a month, a month to the day from me first reporting it to me being in a hospital bed, which was incredible. That's and that's really amazing to hear because I think mm -hmm. you hear so many horror stories. And actually, there are a lot of people who have also been treated extremely well through the yeah. NHS and actually got the attention and care they need. And I think that yeah. also needs to be highlighted because there are things that are being done right. And, and you're an example of one of them. Yeah, I was lucky. A lot of people are surprised when you say you've had cancer and you're lucky. But I was. I found it early. I was treated quickly. I was treated well. I trusted the people that treated me. I had loads of support. I had loads of help uh, at first making dishes. And because of the work I've done, yeah. you know, I was surrounded by, you know, surrounded by people that could help me. And actually, oh, my clients were amazing. They were and so I get <laughs> I guess you've got then your support network to lean yeah. on and actually yeah. also know you know, even from an exercise point of view, what you probably needed to do to keep your yeah. body and mind healthy and happy. Was that difficult or were you like, actually, no, I know what to do now? Um, it was actually, no, it, I won't say easy. So I went into practical mode. I was really anxious and I was, when I was waiting for surgery and what I, what I responded well to was being busy and being active. And it's really weird. I did this little diary, not kind of intentionally, but when I look back on it, if I'd exercised, my levels of anxiety were lower during that day. It was That's really obvious. Yeah. Um, and again, I'd already written. This is the thing. It was such a bizarre um, timeline. I was already halfway through the book. I'd already worked in cancer for ages. I'd lived through um, helping. You know, I'd seen what happened with my dad. You know, I'd been exposed to an awful lot of stuff around cancer. And I'd written a blog about prehab. <laughs> I did rehab. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I did, you know, an absolute credit to the good people of Manchester who did one, you know, because I'd studied their pilot on cancer prehab. Um, for people that don't know, that that's the idea that in between diagnosis and treatment starting, whatever the treatment's going to be, that you have a bit of a plan. And I followed exactly what they did. I looked at exercise, nutrition, and keeping my head together as a three- Pronged attack. So were uh, you were you basically like, if I don't do this because I've studied it, <laughs> I can't be a good example then because I've kind of got to walk the talk. <laughs> um, no, I was less hard on myself than that. I just found it helpful. Yeah, um, I found running really helpful. I did some stuff around strength because I knew I'd have to take one shoulder out of action for a bit. So I did some stuff around my upper body strength. I wanted to be able to come back to work. I mean, I'm self-employed and yeah. I need my physical strength in order to do my job. But it wasn't in a kind of stressy way. It was just um, looking forward, I guess, just wanting to look out for myself. Um, and I, 
again, there's a little bit of an explanation in the book. There's I worked with this lovely, lovely man ages ago, only briefly, a professor called George Hanna, who was one of Imperial's um, cancer, one of Imperial's oncologists. He's a surgeon, actually. And uh, this is going back a long way. This was before 2012. And he used to talk to his um, patients at diagnosis. He would ask them to think of their cancer treatment as their personal Olympics. And what he wanted was for them to get into the best shape possible for that day, for the day they came into hospital. We need more surgeons like him, honestly. And he'd he'd work with them to get them to stop smoking. He'd he'd work with them to get their... uh, diet better and he would work with them to be fitter and what a sound thing you know he's like this is your this is your deal this is your day you need to be in really good shape for that day and I just think that's a really sound message yeah. not blaming you know it's not pinning it on people but saying you know there's also a thing about control isn't there and you can take a little bit of control yeah. at a time that everything's completely nuts you can take a little bit of uh, control in what you choose to do for yourself at that time and it's and it's like people say you wouldn't go into a marathon without doing training and arguably going into cancer and its treatment is one of the hardest periods of your life that you'll ever ever face like both me and you know from a personal perspective we've both been through it not just physical but mentally so if the body isn't prepared for that which Mm. comes into a whole kind of another space around before you're even diagnosed with cancer how you know, you need to look after your body and move. It's such an important part of the whole of life, really. But we could have another podcast on that. But how in, yeah, how important it is and actually getting those key messages at the right time when mm. those teachable moments can happen. So like your surgeon who is technically you listen. I remember I listened to my consultant every single words that she said, mm. other than that you can't run the Great North Run. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's when sometimes you find your own way. But you do, yeah. you know, are teachable moments that if somebody says to you treat this like your own like olympics Mm. you will hold on to those words and start to think about doing something about it which is very powerful so let's talk about the book because i want to deep dive into it so i know you've met we've mentioned bits of it but i wanted to give it the credit it deserves because i've looked through it and it's amazing so let's tell everybody listening what's the book called and why did you want to write a book the book's called Get Your Umph Back, and the tagline is A Guide to Exercise After a Cancer Diagnosis. And to be honest, um, Gemma, going back to what we're talking about, the big career change, one of the things I wanted to do right back then, if I could, was have some way of doing some writing. I've always liked writing. Um I've seen because we we've read all your blogs and you've shared <laughs> them with us on our community. And if anybody hasn't read um, Carolyn's blogs we will share it all on our notes because they need to <laughs> really really wow. need to because they're brilliant thank you well I, I like doing it and again it's the thing about finding things that you can do that you love um I did a master I did an MSc a few years ago in health promotion and one of the things that came out of that was that I did not have the rigor to do a PhD that's fine I can see that but that I write in a way that people will find readable so there's always been a little a little um, seed of ambition there. And I get asked to do talks quite regularly, you know, the classic, why exercise after cancer? And I just wrote one once um, 
at the time I didn't think to turn it into a blog. I, I just wrote it down once as a because I knew I'd use it again. And then somebody asked me to do something slightly differently, and I kept that little presentation. And I did something about prostate cancer, and it just started to look like it could. At some point, a penny dropped, and I thought potentially this could be a book. And I started telling people, it's taken me years. <laughs> Has it? So the seed yeah. started. I've so been working on it a really long time. Um, Have you? Well, I work full time. And, you know, when there's no pressure, it's just been a little thing that I've been playing around with for, for a very long time. I started blogging the individual bits that I'd written, partly just so that I could get a sense of progress. Um, and also to be a little idea. bit accountable. So I started telling people I was writing a book. So and getting they, the vibe and feeling for what they read of it. Yeah, that's great. No, so they keep me on track. <laughs> so they say, how's your book coming along, Carolyn? And I go, oh. but, <laughs> um, but sometimes, so I was just going to say, sometimes taking time to write a book over the years, you're able to then home in on those different experiences. Whereas if sometimes you write it quite quickly, yeah. you don't process what's happened over those years and it doesn't make the book necessarily as you know, it was impactful. So one of the things that happened, um, so the, I was maybe halfway through at the start of the pandemic um, and I had, had I then? I'd started a conversation with trying to work out whether I could get it published. Um, I'd sent it to an agent and they'd said, we don't think we're right for you, but we think that a publisher that would be interested in you is Hammersmith Health Books because they work, they are work, often work with new authors and they specifically do books that are health and well-being related. But but they're they're openly they're a small publishing company and they publish, you know, they're not big bestsellers. They do stuff that's quite niche. Yeah. Um, so I approached them. Uh, Joe, I can't remember the sequence of events, but pandemic started and I thought well I will actually get that book written then because I'm not going to be out and about and then uh, uh, fate intervened and cancer intervened so then I rewrote bits of it because my perspective has changed and um, that's not that's to be really interesting I'm a little bit self-conscious about it because I don't want to be seen to be um, trying to profiteer frankly out of a you know my change of circumstance but I'm now writing the book, as I say, with quite different experience. So where I was writing about can people with cancer as they, I am now writing we. Um, and so I think, do you know when you were saying about the kind of profits, but I think it's, you should absolutely, like, you know, not worry about that because it's, mm -hmm. abs like, you know, it's amazing. People want to hear stories. Yeah. They want to listen to, you've got such a powerful perspective from both a personal and a professional and mm. other people's experiences that to read that, like I've, you know, I've read the first part of the book from what you sent me and I will read the whole thing. And the way you write is just brilliant. And that needs to be heard. Oh, thanks. Um, thank you, Gemma. That's sweet of you to say. I've, I've, I've loved writing it. And um, the thing that finally got me to focus was <laughs> I followed up the publisher so they'd come back. I sent them a bid, you know, you, you, a pitch. You, you send them some stuff on it and say why you're writing it and why now and things like that. And they came back and said, thanks. What we are finding is during lockdown, every single person that believes they have a book in them has now written it. 
<laughs> really that's really so yeah. people aren't just putting their feet up in lockdown no. they're writing books that's you know, everybody was getting a shed down the end of the garden to work <laughs> in they were all writing a book weren't they so at the time the publisher was too busy they said we've been inundated with manuscripts we'll come back to you and um I followed them up a few months later it must have been earlier this year and just went back and said hi remember me and she said I remember you because I remember you talking about Nordic walking hello the second time (laughs) and uh (laughs) she said if you can finish it by May I think it was then if you can finish it by May we'd like to publish your book and I was gobsmacked wow and it just got me to focus so the book you know I, I changed changed some of my timetables around gave it the uh, yeah gave it became the the priority (laughs) yeah yeah and I have absolutely loved writing this book it's been such right from start to finish everything about doing it um yeah I feel really lucky actually I feel very very privileged to have been able to do it the publishers have been really supportive um people so there's, there's some of my um client stories are in there and everybody has been very supportive in me telling their stories and stuff it's it's been lovely I've really really enjoyed doing it that's just amazing to hear Mm. and I think I think what it shows me if we listen back if I think back to the earlier conversations that we had this isn't just inspiring about the work you do with Canton exercise your life journey is really inspiring because (laughs) you've gone from like you say working in screening in the NHS to admin managerial jobs then then stepping away from that into cancer well training as you know exercise professional into cancer rehab and then like having a cancer diagnosis yourself and then becoming a writer because you are <laughs> you know it might be in cancer and exercise but you are now officially a writer and you're finding mm-hmm. like you say skills that you didn't know 20 years ago so for me it's not just everything about cancer and exercise that's incredibly inspiring that you had the courage to take those steps so I think you know people can take a lot from that Oh, I don't know if I'm courageous, Gemma. I've just, when you find something that you're enjoying and you somehow manage to wangle it, that you can do it and that you can progress it, I wouldn't say courageous. I think I've got a sense of gratitude. And I just, yeah. you know, if there's, if there's a way to do it, then it's, it's just lovely. And so, yeah, I don't feel particularly courageous, but I know, as I say, I'm, I'm able to appreciate if there's something there that I can do. And I think it's sometimes when you took that step back with that career advisor of going what do I really want to do and not a lot of us put ourselves first we obviously you know have everybody else that's going around us and don't think about ourselves but sometimes once you think about you your values what you want to do in life what makes you tick what clears the air what makes you present Mm -hmm. that's when you're able able to open up and then realize what you want to do because from speaking to you you can hear the passion coming across that this is what you're made to do in life and what you Mm. want to do and I can imagine that this isn't just going to be the only book that you release we're going to have book after book um so who is this if I was listening to this podcast who is the book for and who will it benefit anybody who's had a cancer diagnosis um as I said earlier the evidence is most prominent uh in the common cancers um but it's applicable to anybody who's had treatment or is having treatment. Um, I've written some stuff in there specifically for people who are living with cancer because I think that they get a really rough deal on so many levels and get overlooked. And likewise, there's some stuff in there about people who are uh, 
who are having palliative care or towards the end of life because again yeah. there are benefits then yeah that just don't get described and don't get any attention so right from prehab to end of life there's something in there i hope um to support people whatever they will love to do um i think there's an awful lot of breast cancer in there because it's my experience and also uh, in terms of numbers of people who've come across me, my clients, um, I've probably seen more women with breast cancer than anything else. But there's also some stuff in there for everybody else. There's some stuff for the fellas because I do train quite a few men. Um, and there's some stuff I've learned from how my dad uh, lived his life. He was amazing. Um, so there's all that uh, there's loads of it and there's a lot of strength training in there deliberately because the thing you're saying about that people don't really know how a lot of people will get from other messages they'll know that it's important that they walk and that they do some kind of cardio exercise or exercise that they've been doing before but uh, people are really afraid to do the wrong thing in terms of strength training so there's there's loads in there about um how to make our muscles stronger and I think like I took from your book that I loved what you said about and we're talking about the how now but I'm just going to read the words from it because I think you put it in such a good way I was like if I do a workshop I'm gonna steal that because it's and I'll quote <laughs> you don't worry but um what you said was it's still not so apparent is the how mm. so you get so much information about you know why is it important to exercise like what can you do but actually how you go about doing it so before, during and after the rigorous of cancer treatment, can we actually find the confidence, the energy and the time to move and be active and what's safe, what will work and how much do I need to do and how do I even start? And I think your book covers a lot of that, doesn't it? Because you have mm. practical advice, which I think is so important. Like it's great to have the understanding, but we need to know how. Yeah. And we also need to not admonish ourselves. And that's one of the things I would hate to add to people's to-do list. And I would hate to make people feel bad uh, if they aren't able to exercise at the moment or if they aren't able to move as much as they would like to because it's just, it's just not helpful. It's counterproductive. So the hope is, without being patronising, that there's enough in there for people, however active they are and however active they wish to be, yeah. Um, because you know, you, I don't want people to beat themselves up. It's let's say it's not fair, it's not helpful. Having cancer is tough enough without a load of people nagging you to do this, do that, do more of that, do less of this. Yeah, uh, not the intention. And sometimes it's planting, some people actually just need the seed planting without taking any action, and that seed mm -hmm. slowly grows over time the more it becomes more common in the healthcare system around exercise and cancer. And that seed grows, and then the action becomes that next step and that action becomes what you want to do rather than being forced to do it like you said so mm -hmm. it can take time and times you know give yourself the time to take those steps um, and I think the book is also incredible for healthcare professionals if you want a greater understanding I think it's yeah. so important for cancer rehab instructors to read your book for healthcare professionals to read it because it'll give you a such a good understanding of yeah like you said from a because the power that you've been able to write it from a professional point of view, but a personal point of view, we need to be reading more of this as healthcare professionals. And I think, mm. yeah, that's why it's really valuable. A big, fantastic tool 
Um, we need to get it in every cancer care centre in the UK and Ireland and abroad. Fine by me. <laughs> That's the key. So how do people get the book, Carolyn? We're doing a, a push for this because it's not an ad, it's a full-on push, as they say. <laughs> so how can people get the book? So it's been the publication date, as far as I know, is the 18th of November. Uh, it's available for pre-order already. Um, all of the big booksellers have got it. Uh, Amazon. I've seen it on uh, Amazon. Waterstones, Foils. Um, it's being sold in Ireland as well as the UK. So I know 5K, you're always spread to Ireland. So there's a, oh, I don't remember their name. There's a there's a book, there's a chain of books, bookshops across Ireland that are going to be carrying it. Um, and then it'll come out in real person, say, mid November. It'll be on Kindle as well, which is really exciting. And That's amazing. Uh, it's available all over the world, which is really Wow. Cool. And it should be. It's information I did that not, needs to get out there. I just didn't see that. I saw a website in Estonia the other day where it is. It's all over Scandinavia, loads of places. So is so, this the right time to ask for your autograph? Just in case you get too big time for another interview. <laughs> Don't be daft. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's just really exciting. So I'm thrilled. But yeah, it is it is selling on pre-order at the moment and then it'll be in bookshops. So we need to have a, we need to have a launch party or just a celebration. <laughs> You'll have to have a virtual get together. Well, yeah, this is the thing. COVID has kind of uh, meant that there won't be anything involving Volivants particularly. Yeah. Um, what what I would like to do is is some online stuff. Um, I've got I've got to formalise it, but I think what I'll do is take I'll do some stuff online where we go through some of the route. The book's got loads of practical stuff in it, so uh, a chair based exercise routine, a low impact cardio routine, a higher impact, loads of strength stuff. So what I could foresee is that we'll do some of that online, so people can actually get a sense of how the the actual exercises. Work. There's loads of photos and stuff in the book, but I think we might do a little bit of that on camera as well. Brilliant. So let us know when you do that and we'll make sure our community um, definitely hear about that because I'm sure many of us will want to jump onto that and support you, but also see oh, you know, see you. everything. So, Well, there is an awful lot of Move Against Cancer and 5K Your Way in there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a big family, isn't it, now, which is amazing. Is, yeah. So. So I just want to finish off with asking what's next for you. Is there, you know, oh. yeah, anything what's next in your life? Um, big fat holiday in December. Love it. Where are you going? Um, so here's an, and this is a cancer related story. When I was diagnosed, one of the clients who I was training with the dumbbells that led me to find the lump, um, she has a place. She has a, a villa in Barbados, and she said, oh, wow. "I know, I know, right? That's, <laughs> that's amazing." And when I was diagnosed, she said, "If you would like to go out there as part of your recovery, you'd be very welcome." Which is extremely kind of her. And I've not been able to do it up until now because travel has been so difficult. But uh, that's a little pre-Christmas, well, massive pre-Christmas. How long are you going for? A year? <laughs> was that? <laughs> Was that enough, enough for us? I'm writing the next book, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And uh, feet up in Barbados with a cocktail and writing your book. Perfect. It's, but joking aside, the again, nothing official yet, but uh, the publishers are interested in, interested in me writing a second book. 
Oh, fantastic. So, Congratulations, because I know that's hard to, I know, yeah. you know, we'll be having a podcast on how you write a book and how you get a publisher next, because I'm sure <laughs> loads of people would love to hear about it. But that's yeah. really exciting. Isn't it? Yeah. It's really nice. It's so lovely talking, like you, like you said, it's so nice talking about this stuff now, because this is a re- just a really lovely time of my life, God, I've met. You know, it's it's so, it's really thrilling. So many things have happened about this book because it's been an ambition of mine for so long. So talking about things that are personally really rewarding and thrilling is just lovely, actually. It feels really positive, which is nice. Oh, yeah, and I can feel the the positive vibes coming from you. And I just wish everybody could see your face because it's (laughs) glowing and you're just, you can tell when you talk about it how excited and proud you are. And, you know, we're really proud to know you and honoured honoured to do your first podcast, which I'm sure... Once the book's released, will be the first mm-hmm. of many as well. Because I think yes. that you've got, you know, you've got so much knowledge and understanding and inspiration to share with people, um, yeah, Carolyn. So, yeah, I feel like I want to give you a big hug right yeah. now. <laughs> virtual hug. Well, back um, at you. <laughs> but I'm going to, we'll wrap this up now, Carolyn. But I just want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. And I'm sure we'll do a part two. Um, maybe we could do a part two on the podcast once the books come out and we could maybe read through some of the book. That would be awesome. Whatever you'd like. Thank you. I'm really, really um, flattered that you've had me. Honestly, Gemma, it's been lovely. <laughs> oh, thanks, Carolyn. Speak soon. All right. You take care, won't you? What an amazing conversation. I don't know about you after listening to that, but I'm super inspired, not just from the perspective of cancer, exercise, physical activity and movement, but also following Carolyn's life journey, the steps that she's taken, you know, the leaps that she's taken in her life, the career changes and the courage and the bravery to step outside her comfort zone and write a book. I am madly in love with books. I absolutely love them. I read a lot. And I've always thought about writing my own book. And Carolyn has inspired me to, you know, maybe take that step one day. And, you know, she talks about how it's just something she loved. And I wish you could have seen the face, Carolyn's face, as she was talking some of her passions through some of her experiences, both professionally and personally, some experiences with clients. And it just came to life. And I think you can tell from the words that she said Um, She is truly passionate and at one with her life right now. And it's so inspiring to see. So make sure you do get a hold of that copy when it's out, um, her book, which is Get Your Oomph Back. And we found the reason where oomph came from in her northern accent. Um, And it's a guide to exercise after a cancer diagnosis. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Please subscribe to our Move Against Cancer podcast. Give us a like or review. But also, if you can download the podcast, that really gives us a great idea of who is listening and how many people are engaging in this information and this well, this podcast. And we really hope it gives you the tools, the knowledge, the ideas and the inspiration you might need at this stage in your life. So after that incredible interview, I am off to grab a cup of tea, as I always do after every podcast, put my feet up and just reflect on that incredible conversation. So thank you so much for listening, everybody. Mm